Welcome to the Echo Chamber. This is Arun Sudhaman from the Homes Report. Um, and before we get started, as always, I'd like to thank our sponsor, March, uh, and a big shout to our production partner, Marketeers. We're joined today in the studio in London um, by Eric Holreiser, who's Head of Corporate Communications at PokerStars. Eric, welcome. Thanks, Arun. It's great to be here. So I thought it would be great to have you in to, to have a little bit of a chat about some of the things that you've been through at PokerStars, and in particular that the company has been through. I mean, it's been a... Uh, a, a it's, I suppose you could say it hasn't been a, a very quiet time for PokerStars over the last five years. Um, there have been uh, numerous issues the company has had to address, ranging from uh, regulatory uh, issues, regulatory fines, um, acquisitions, sales, uh, a lot to test the uh, the head of communications, um, a, a lot of crises, uh, and a lot of regulatory affairs work. So I wondered if we could start perhaps by um, perhaps you talking us through a little bit first uh, in terms of why uh, why PokerStars has, has found itself in this position. Sure. Um, you know, for for those who may not be familiar with PokerStars, we are the the largest online poker site in the world. Uh, we have over a hundred million registered users, so um, we are a, a very well known brand in something of a niche industry. Mm-hmm. And as you can imagine, you know, being an online poker, an online gaming company, that comes with all of the baggage that a gaming company comes with. You know, the the uh, moralistic issues around gaming and gambling, uh, as well as the fact that it's a, you know, on, in the bricks and mortar business, it's a heavily regulated industry. Going back to 2001, when the site was launched, uh, as many disruptive technologies are, uh, it was well ahead of the regulatory curve. So there's, we've lived, you know, ever since then, frankly, in something of a gray area. So you know, we moved quickly to bring something that was wildly popular uh, in the analog world into the digital world, and regula- regulators weren't ready for it. Mm-hmm. So we've been a, a strong proponent of regulation uh, since the beginning because we understood the need for that and the, you know, we call it legitimacy of the industry was in part going to be based upon our ability to be regulated and to be seen as a uh, legitimate form of business. So, you know, from the start, that is, you know, a, a, a gray area to be living in, which means it's going to be fraught with complexities and issues. Uh, nevertheless, we, we grew very quickly and very successfully. Our largest market was the United States, mm-hmm. you know, sort of the home of, of poker. And, um, you know, we grew very large. And there were a number of attempts by the, uh, the legislators, mainly in Congress, to find a way to regulate online gaming. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, we were po- poker-specific, but there were and still are online casinos, online sports books. And you know, the, the regulators look at things differently between poker, casino, and, and sports. And poker is much more of a skill game. So there was a complexity in the law around, is it really gambling? So we were very successful, heavily marketed in the U.S., tens of millions of dollars every year in television advertising. We became the largest producer of, of poker TV content and mm. were very widely known and loved in America. Uh, and there were constant attempts to, to regulate in some form or fashion. 
um, most mostly unsuccessfully or done in such a way that it didn't provide the clarity that was really needed in the industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of that came to a head on April 15th, 2011. And hang on just a second. When did you join Pocastars? I joined the, the, the company on May 1st officially, uh, but had been in, in discussions with with the company for a number of months. Mm-hmm. So while we were at the final stages of uh, reaching an agreement on April 15th, 2011, the Department of Justice seized the URLs of the three largest online poker companies operating mm-hmm. in the U.S. So our uh, our customers, in the morning of April 15th, logged on to their onto the site and saw a great big FBI logo saying this, shi- this site has been seized by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Um, and they issued a uh, uh, indictment against our founder and a couple of executives for uh, various criminal activities, largely having to do with uh, wire fraud and money laundering, all sorts of very scary things, uh, frankly, related to the exchange of money online. Mm, right. So there was also a civil forfeiture case filed against the company individually or the, the, the corporately. So that pretty much constitutes as a crisis. At the time, we had been growing globally, but it was still 25% of our uh, business that overnight literally disappeared. It meant we were holding on to hundreds of millions of dollars of player funds mm-hmm. that they could not access because the FBI had seized the, the URL. So we had lots of angry Mm-hmm. customers and, you know, just questioning what was going on. And you hadn't even joined the company yet. I hadn't joined the company. Um, so at this point, you're thinking, maybe I'll just walk away. <laughs> <laughs> I could have thought that. Um, but instead, I thought, wow, they really need me now. <laughs> and Only a communicator. And <laughs> would think, yeah, maybe a lawyer too. <laughs> and, uh, you know, frankly, as an American, it was also a little bit of safety because of the gray, uh, the grayness of the, uh, of the practices and, and the law. We had to withdraw from the U.S. market, which we did immediately, and therefore there was no gray area for me to even consider. You know, am, am I should I be concerned about working for this company? Um, so we did a, a very quick deal with the Department of Justice that allowed us to open up the site for players to simply go in and withdraw their funds. Mm. Um, all the while, obviously taking legal advice and and you know working on the the several tracks of suits, the criminal suits, as well as the civil forfeiture case. And, you know, as you can imagine, it was a very trying time for employees, a trying mm. time for customers, uh, a very trying time for management. And there's no crisis manual for this. There really isn't. You know, if there, there is one, I, I uh, would love to have read it before then. Uh, perhaps I can write it now. You, you know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it was, you know, as a sort of new employee and as, as someone getting to know the company, it was, in hindsight, a fantastic way to get ingrained into the business. And it was, importantly, as a, as a communicator, a fantastic way to get into the mindset of the executive team and mm-hmm. the owners um, and to see how, how they dealt with things, which gave me, frankly, tremendous comfort because their, their very first thought was for the employees. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thought was for their players and customers. Uh, and the third was, all right, how do we deal with this legal issue? Mm. They were all happening simultaneously, but it really showed the the kind of morals and, and ethics of the team that I just joined. So we, we in doing what we did to, to allow the players to quickly get in and get their money, uh, an interesting and, and somewhat ironic thing happened, and that was 
because our two major competitors who had also been seized were not able to do that. Um, we became, you know, we were very, we had very passionate fans and, and a, a lot of brand loyalty. But being able to do that just increased our loyalty while at the same time we were under, you know, kind of federal indictment. Mm. So it's an interesting dichotomy. Um, so we took, we took that all obviously very seriously. And um, at the same time, we're continuing to expand our European operations. And, and that was growing very well. So it took about a year, but we, through negotiations with the Department of Justice, ultimately settled with them for uh, $731 million, mm -hmm. which included, from a reputation standpoint, something we were very keen on, which was no admission of wrongdoing. Because throughout, we felt that we were operating uh, within the law. The fact was there were no laws that covered what we were doing, and we had numerous opinions from uh, from major U.S. law firms stating that. So we we never felt that we were in violation of any state or federal law. Mm. But the FBI presumably thought otherwise. True. Mm -hmm. um, and w without getting into too much detail, there was you know the the major thing about online gaming that everyone pointed to was the Wire Act, and that it was mm. a violation of the Wire Act. And interestingly, uh, several months after our settlement. Um, or actually several, several months after the indictments were laid down, the uh, Department of Justice put out a memorandum saying explicitly that the Wire Act covers only sports betting and right. not any other forms and of And was that the legal advice gambling. you had received as well? It was. Right. So it was in keeping with, with what we had heard. So it gave us, you know, frankly, a bit uh, of confidence that our position was, was very solid. Uh, but again, in that gray area, you're always at risk. Mm -hmm. And that was the, you know, the risk that we took and, and, and it came down. So the, the settlement also was very interesting because our two largest competitors had at that point effectively gone out of business, mm. uh, leaving their customers in the lurch for you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And as part of their settlement, our largest competitor, Full Tilt Poker, had effectively given up all the assets of the company to the Department of Justice. And in, a, you know, I think, an, an unprecedented deal, part of our settlement included the acquisition of, of – our largest competitor, mm. and a promise to reopen the, the site specifically so that we could repay the players in Europe that were out uh, about $180 million, mm. while part of our settlement to the Department of Justice would go to repay American players. As you can imagine, the DOJ was catching a lot of heat for a long time from those full tilt players who were saying, hey, I, you know, I have $10,000 on, on the site here. I want mm. my money back. A tricky, so. a tricky one. What was the, if there was a message that you were communicating to customers at this point, what was it? Well, it was that your money is safe. Mm. And that was, you know, the, the key issue. And the fact that we were able to, to repay players became something of a, a, a badge of honor and something that, as I say, in the U.S. certainly built our brand loyalty. And in other parts of uh, the world, it showed that we were running the company in a very, you know, sound way. So and the main reason why we were able to pay back the players was we never saw that as our money. Mm. We were holding their money. Um, and so in, in doing so, we actually, because at the time we were pushing for regulation throughout Europe and were regulated in, in multiple jurisdictions in Europe, and we worked with those regulators to ensure that their regulations were following the same sound practices that we found that we were uh, following. So it it did become it, it showed how we were running the business, you know, very legitimately and very above board. 
uh, it also showed the need for legislation. And, and some of that, I think, helped push some of the European jurisdictions that were looking to license toward a regulatory environment. And we're now licensed in 15 jurisdictions and, you know, the most licensed online gaming company in the world. Mm-hmm. So you have the settlement. You you make the acquisition of Full Tilt. Everything goes back to normal? <clears throat> Not quite, but, uh, you know, our, our first, you know, business item after that was, okay, how do we get back in the U.S.? Mm. And, you know, in the aftermath of what the uh, players started calling Black Friday on, of April 15th was a groundswell of state regulation and trying to move toward regulating online poker because the, you know, the reality is, again, it's this is technology that's that's – you know, of an internet age, there were still sites offering online poker, online casino, online sports betting in America as they are today. Uh, so the, the, the business is still there. Customers mm. were still on various sites, largely that were offshore sites. Right. Sports uh, books. Exactly. And so on. so yeah. states and, and the gaming states in particular were very quick to seize on that opportunity. And so Nevada passed the first online poker legislation in the country. Uh, the, the next was Delaware, which did a, a similar um, legislation, and New Jersey was the largest. And so we set our sites because another part of our, our settlement included the explicit right to apply for licenses if and when they became available in the U.S. So we sought a New Jersey license. And that was was quite a reputation issue because, you know, while, again, we feel we had the law on our side and we had our history on our side as being very legitimate, good actors, we had well-financed competitors who were, uh, were seeking every opportunity to oppose our entry into the market. Is, was that the problem from day one? In what, in what way? I mean, do, do, do you attribute your, your well-financed competitors to the regulatory pressure um, that you had received, you know, back in, in, in 2010, 2011? There was certainly, you know, from a reputation standpoint, there we had competitors that were accusing us of all sorts of right. uh, activities. At one point, the largest association in the gaming industry came out against us while we were applying for a license in New Jersey and, mm-hmm. and literally outright called us criminals. Um, so how do you... How do you confront that from a right. reputation standpoint um, was really about transparency. Mm-hmm. And while we were a private company uh, and had very private owners, they understood the need to start pulling back the curtain, mm-hmm. which is what you know I was initially brought in to do and once sort of dealing with the immediate crises uh, set about in pulling back that curtain mm-hmm. and showing you know, the management practices. And you never felt you had anything to hide. No, and that's and that was you know a, a reality that we faced, and and you know as private as a private company wants to be, in a heavily regulated environment, in a regulating environment, and with all of the you know baggage that a, a gaming company comes with, you know I certainly was advocating greater transparency, mm-hmm. and so we did that in in a number of ways, uh, a lot of it very customer fo- focused to make sure that our customers were feeling confident that they were dealing with a company that was legitimate, but that also obviously had sev- you know, several audiences. So a lot of that was educating and informing legislators. So rather than it being a, a federal issue, which is what it was always considered before that, it became a state-by-state issue. So we began you know, effectively a ground campaign in multiple states to 
push for legislation and mm. push for our inclusion in that legislation. Right. So we we in New Jersey, the way the law was framed there, the licenses would only be available to existing casino uh, owners. So we set about actually going to acquire a an Atlantic City based casino, which you know created all sorts of reputation issues for us in terms of first we'd have to acquire the casino, then gain the casino license, and then go for the online gaming license. So um, that was fraught with all sorts of issues. And again, our competitors in the large casinos there were uh, were understandably upset about the idea of us having to compete against us online. Mm-hmm. So. You know, ultimately, that acquisition failed, and it became clear that that New Jersey was going to be very difficult for us to mm. enter the U.S. market, hmm. given the you know the the reality of our history. Despite the fact that there there were laws in state in in certain states exactly allowing it, why don't any of these well entrenched casino players have their own online businesses? Well, it's interesting. Again, like like in other industries, mm. you know, the the online gaming industry grew from entrepreneurs, mm. and those entrenched existing businesses were just very slow to react at first, just kind of ignoring it. It's a bit like blockbuster versus Netflix. Very much so. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, we un, until we became big enough, they weren't really paying attention. Then, mm-hmm. when we became big enough, it became all right. Well, how do we, you know, how do we stop it? And then, you know, at that point, they were years behind the curve in terms of having the technology, having the understanding of the market. It's a very different uh, Mm -hmm. environment. So, and throughout that time, we were growing. And, you know, today we still stand with 70% market share in the online poker market. So we are the, you know, 300-pound gorilla that Mm -hmm. I can understand why competitors would rather not have us in the marketplace. Mm. And uh, as part of the... This effort to uh, to gain U.S. licenses, you yourself testified, I think, in in, in various states. Is that uh, correct? I, I did, yes. And you know, we had we had a, f- a few things that that occurred before that. Once once the realization became clear to our then owners that entry into the U.S. market was going to be more difficult, um, they started considering something which they hadn't before, which was to sell the company. Mm. And so, in a in a move that was uh, very surprising to most people. We ended up being acquired by a small publicly traded company based out of Montreal uh, called Amaya. And they acquired the company for a all-cash $5 billion sum. Then that was heavily financed by uh, Blackstone, BlackRock, Deutsche Bank. So it was the first time that smart sort of money was coming into the online gaming space, Mm -hmm. um, certainly in, in the American market. So that was, you know, meant to... Kind of cleanse the the management of the company, so to speak. The the owners left the business, as did a number of senior executives, and it was time for a fresh start. And so, you know, I, I quickly made my way to Montreal and got to know the management team, and, and was asked to take over corporate communications for the entire uh, corporate entity as well as the operating business. And it was really sort of the dawn of a new day, and and it was an opportunity to really open up that. Uh, uh, U.S. market to turn the page on the past and and look straight forward to a bright future. Um, but as as a friend of mine says often, if you want to give God a laugh, tell him your plan. <laughs> within within several months of our um, attempts to uh, turn that page, 
unfortunately, there was a, an investigation launched into insider trading allegations uh, that involved some senior executives of Amaya Corporate. Right. Which so it's uh, out of the frying pan. Exactly. <laughs> Very much so. And and you know, I was I was in our offices in Montreal when the Quebec provincial um, securities regulator mm-hmm. came in, and I. I realized that when when there was a large uh, uh, horse R- no, R- no, RCMP horses. officer standing in my uh, office doorway asking me to stand up and step away from my desk. Wow, um, which was uh, which was a bit shocking mm-hmm. for sure, and probably overly dramatic to be honest. Um, they like that though, I think. Exactly. I imagine. So so yes, it was very much out of the frying pan into the fire, and 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 that you know, became the overhang that, again, our, our competitors used to, to club us. Mm. Uh, nevertheless, we were successful in, in gaining a license in New Jersey after, you know, one of the most thorough investigations into, a, you know, certainly a gaming company, perhaps any kind of company could get. And the New Jersey Division of Gambling Enforcement is known as sort of the gold standard of, of gaming regulation and, and literally the, the exhaustive... Um, investigation that they did turned every stone and, and mm-hmm. looked into every facet of our business and, and they ultimately uh, provided us with a with the, the approval to operate in New Jersey. So nevertheless the, the overhang of the investigation was there and as we were, you know, trying to educate legislators and regulators, that that was still very clear and, and um, in people's faces as as it were. So to your to your question about um, Testifying, yes. So, so it becomes that much more difficult when we were trying to turn the page and, and you know, give our quote-unquote clean narrative. We had that overhang and still had the baggage of, of history. And mm. uh, I remember uh, testifying in Sacramento before the, the California legislature, and, and I had a a, uh, a legislator confront me on our past activities, and I you know gave him our narrative and ran through all the reasons why. Um, we felt we were operating within the law. Uh, he wasn't. He wasn't buying any of it, to to be honest, and said some. You know, it was sort of extraordinary to me that he, you know, he asked the question, which is a natural question: is well, if you if you're not guilty, why did you, uh, why did you settle? And and I gave him the answer that I think most businesses do, which is you make a, a financial decision at the end mm-hmm. of the day that it's worth settling something, even if you are innocent, simply to get it behind you. Um, and he, he said that, um, you know, that he was a sheriff and that he understands the law very well um, and said, as far as he's concerned, if you settle, you're guilty. And he <laughs> said, don't you, don't you believe that? And I said, no, what, what, what I believe is the presumption of innocence. So, and um, as a sheriff, <laughs> you yes, should believe I would, that too. I would hope so. Uh, nevertheless, it was, it, was, it was good to see that he gave the thumbs up sign to our competitor who was sitting in the audience after he uh, walked away from the hearing. So, you know, the political realities are the political realities. And that's, right. that's true in, in every state in America. It's true in, in every country in the world. There mm. are politics at play. And particularly when you're talking about gaming, um, it, is, it becomes a moralistic issue. It's, it's a much more emotional issue than, it, uh, than a simple, and it's not a simple, legal issue. Mm. So that adds to the complexity of your story. But again, for, for me, it was about being transparent, about being willing to have the conversation, about being open about what we were looking for and looking to do. Um, and, you know, 
being looking forward to being taxed, frankly, and and to to raise revenue for the state mm-hmm. in order to protect consumers who are taking part in an activity that's happening, you know, whether they regulate or not. Yeah, sure. And was that is that your kind of your key crisis management lesson from this this entire? Yeah, there's there's a number of things. You know, you you I've always been a big believer of you know the best way to dodge the bullet is to make sure it never gets put in the chamber. So mm. being prepared and and trying to anticipate issues and and mitigating them as best you can before they happen. Now, obviously, there are things you just cannot be prepared for. So with that, it was really about you know being the calm in the middle of the storm. And and I think as communicators, that's one of the most important things to do is to be able to keep your head when everybody else is running around. And, and think through um, the, you know, obviously the reputation issues, but think through as far as you can. And, and, and I consider it, you know, looking around corners while everybody's looking at what's going on in front of them and, and really thinking through the implications of what you say and when you say it. Mm-hmm. So I think we've, we've been very successful throughout, you know, th- those various um, crises and, and they, they do continue. The, the investigation in, in Canada is that that's been resolved. So it has not been resolved. Okay. Um, it, from a from a reputation standpoint, the our CEO ultimately uh, had to step down from all roles in the, in the company. He's still the single largest shareholder in the company, um, but that obviously created more issues around management and and trying to um, you know to operate in you know such a dynamic, we'll call it, uh, environment. And, you know, as again, as a communicator and thinking through, you know, how you best prepare for these things, it is having a great staff, having great agency partners that you trust and that know your business, mm-hmm. uh, understanding your business fully well. Um, and really thinking, you know, ha- having a seat at the table is so important. Yeah, right? which you so, clearly have. And I've been able to do that now through we're on our fifth CEO in the five years I've been there. So um, mm. it's it's <laughs> the the role of the counselor as a communicator. That's or, impressive. You've lasted five CEOs. Most comms heads don't. It's It's been a challenge. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, to, to be fair, you know, you go through some of these crises and become, you know, experienced in – What's, you know, for most companies, if they ever face these kinds of challenges, mm-hmm. you know, it would be once in a, in a lifetime. And, yeah. and we've had a succession of them. Yeah. So do, do you kind of enjoy it now? I mean, do you, do you think maybe, a, you know, it, it could be could get boring if, if you didn't have any, any you know, these big challenges? I, it's fair to say that I'm, I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie. Mm. So, you know, I don't think anyone who who is in, you know, corporate communications uh, doesn't get a bit of a thrill when it's crisis time, right? Because right. that's when you have the opportunity to shine. That's when you have the opportunity to um, demonstrate to the business what you can do and the importance of, of the function. And reputation management, I think, is growing in in boardrooms. You know, I think mm-hmm. there's a recognition among boards these days that reputation is a key business factor and maintaining and, and expanding your reputation is just part of doing business and a crucial yeah. part. But maybe a few less crises as you look forward. Uh, you know, I, I keep saying you know, a little bit of boredom would be good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but so far, it, it's, it's eluded what, so me. So what's the, what's the state of play right now? What's the, the focus for PokerStars looking ahead? It's, you know, we're, we're continuing to look for growth. We've expanded now beyond poker and into casino and, and mm-hmm. sports betting and, uh, and have been very successful there. Uh, we are still undergoing a process with the, the special committee of the board where we have um, 
we're examining our strategic alternatives. Mm. Um, you know, okay. an, another another issue that that came up that was you know interesting was as our CEO had taken a leave of absence, he also then uh, put out a proposal to buy back all the shares of the company that he didn't own and to take the company private, which mm-hmm. uh, as a publicly traded company led to the institution of, uh, of a board committee to look into that, uh, but also f- on behalf of the shareholders to look at any other interested parties. Mm. So we've actually been in that process now for, uh, for quite a few months, um, which is, again, another overhang that as a, as a communicator, you want to be out there and be very proactive while understanding you're, you're going through a process that can be mm-hmm. challenging. You know, and I have to say the other important challenge was maintaining company morale. You know, we've got 2,000 employees around the world and, you know, crisis after crisis can be draining on, on your workforce. And, yeah. and, you know, I have to say we've done a, a very good job of keeping employees informed, keeping them engaged, keeping them motivated, and frankly, keeping them focused on the business and, and keeping as few people focused on dealing with the latest crisis as, as possible and, and really trying to ring, ring fence those issues. Uh, while being transparent about it, but just making sure it's not getting in the way of uh, of doing your business. Yeah, that's a, that's quite impressive that you have been able to do that. And you personally, so you've been working across consumer, corporate, financial, investor relations now as well. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, regulatory, public affairs, and crisis. So you've kind of hit them all. They're, they're getting their money's <laughs> worth, from and you. they're very often at the same time, which is <laughs> which is kind of fun and, and creates a, a a great kind of a challenge. Excellent. Well, Eric, we should get you back on here because you've also got quite an interesting history um, before PokerStars. You worked at a number of, of brands, agency agencies, and indeed in, in, in the trades at Adweek and mm-hmm. various other media. I've been, um, I've been very privileged that way. I've, I've worked with some great companies, great brands, and had some great mentors and colleagues sure. know, from Microsoft, Disney, Activision. Um, and, you know, I, I'd like to think that this has been a path that uh, – that led me to be prepared for the unexpected that I've dealt with in the past five years. Yeah, absolutely. But I think you have a plane to catch, so we'll let you go. So, Eric, thank you so much for joining us. 